This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you, David, for, uh, for inviting me here, and thank you all for coming. Um, I should say, though, that uh, as I understand it, I've been asked to uh, speak as part of a series on international history, what it is, what it isn't, why we should care. Uh, but uh, as I was explaining to David before um, we came up here, in a sense I'm here under false pretenses because for the last five years or so, um, the work I've been doing more and more is not so much international history, but rather uh, transnational or global history. Um, and I'm going to be talking to you about that and how I uh, see the differences between these different fields. Um, the work I've been doing is to try to write a history of uh, the population control movement. Um, and I've been finding that to understand the history of this movement, it's uh, rather um, problematic to approach it as international history. Um, and I, I want to explain, though, why I think it's, it's worth doing anyway. Um, and I want to explain why it is that uh, even to understand international history and the way it's been changing uh, often uh, requires that we work outside the, uh, the assumptions and the frameworks of international history. But um, first of all, why is it uh, that people in my field um, in international history um, have had difficulty working outside these frameworks? How is it that they've often had difficulty seeing um, so much history um, so much global history um, that's difficult to understand as international history. And some of the most important of that history, I would argue, is uh, the history of population growth and movement. Let me just uh, quote from a, a few other historians about, uh, about this history. Jeffrey Baraclaw once observed that, and I'm quoting, the demographic revolution of the half century between 1890 and 1940 what he called the dwarfing of Europe, was the basic change marking the transition from one era of history to another. Now, if anything, the population growth and movement in the period that followed have been even more revolutionary. William H. McNeil has argued, and again I'm quoting, the global growth of population is the most fundamental and pervasive disturber of human society in modern times. I think uh, it's actually credible to make these claims about the importance of, of population history. In the last century, humanity has experienced more than twice as great a gain in longevity as in the previous 2,000 centuries, and more than four times more growth in population. Now, I'm not going to be showing you graphs today. I'll be showing you other things. But I think all of us have that ski jump uh, in our minds. Um, plotting the, the growth of world population over the course of human history. Now this history has literally transformed humankind because it's not just populations that have grown, but people. Now when Thomas Malthus first warned that population growth uh, unchecked would inevitably lead to starvation some 200 years ago, uh, the average Englishman was about five foot six and 135 pounds. 
And they were among the tallest and the best-fed people in Europe. People today average a full third larger in their body mass uh, than people some two centuries ago, as near as we can calculate these things. Now, to the extent that sheer numbers of workers and consumers will count in climate change, the collective weight of humanity will raise the seas and change the very air that we breathe. Now, this is a signal event, not merely in human history, but in the history of life on Earth. Yet it is fundamentally different from any other episode in natural history. For the first time, the future of a species, not only its numbers, but its very nature, has become the object of its own design. Now, for more than a century, people around the world have organized to try to control the population of the world. Uh, movements to try to regulate world migration. Uh, movements to try to improve the quality of population through eugenics. Movements to try to cut down the rate of increase. And movements to prevent what Teddy Roosevelt called race suicide. Pronatalist movements to increase fertility. Now, all of these movements shared the premise that societies should consciously reproduce themselves by design, even if that meant controlling how people disposed of their own bodies. And all looked at human beings not as individuals, but as populations, populations that could be shaped through the combined force of faith and science. Now, the present population of the world its density and distribution, its ethnic and religious composition, its age structure, the balance or imbalance between men and women is the fruit of these struggles. Yet, few people in the field of international history have paid any attention to how they have already, these movements, changed the world. And the reason, I think, is that we are international historians, and we mainly concern ourselves with war and diplomacy between states. But is this history any less important than the ideological and territorial struggles of the last century? For instance, the Second World War, history's most catastrophic bloodletting, scarcely slowed the rise of world population. As near as we can determine, between 1936 and 1945, the population of the world continued to increase by about 15 million people a year. Now, some of the byproducts of that conflict, uh, such as improved understanding of nutrition because of, of wartime rationing, uh, DDT spraying of mosquitoes, actually contributed um, to the worldwide decline in mortality. But what about the Cold War? This is a subject that most of my colleagues in international history are still quite preoccupied with. And the most important thing about the struggle between the US and the USSR is what didn't happen, global nuclear war. If that had occurred, things had turned out differently, we would probably have seen hundreds of millions of fatalities, uh, especially in Europe and North America, uh, the emptying of cities, uh, refugee flows from north to south, and probably a shift in geopolitical power in the same direction. Yet the period of the Cold War witnessed demographic changes 
that were no less dramatic, even if they unfolded over decades. World population more than doubled. Uh, the proportion of North Americans and Europeans shrunk by a third, by more than a third. Uh, the cities of the so-called Global South became the largest in the world. And migration northward started to transform the ethnic composition of many societies, such that France, in France, uh, Islam is the second largest religion. Uh, and in the United States, uh, Anglos may be a minority by 2050. Now, even now, long after the demise of population control as an organized movement, fear of the fertility and the mobility of particular groups continues to spark ethnic strife. Population projections. Uh, how many of them and us will there be 20, 30, 50 years from now? These are fodder for conflict among Americans worried about Hispanics, among Europeans worried about Muslims, among Israelis worried about Palestinians, to name just a few. Now, at the same time, concerns that we have grown beyond the Earth's carrying capacity spur demands for new global norms and institutions. Ethnic conflict and global governance present, I believe, the greatest challenges to an international system based on the principle of state sovereignty. That is, the idea that nation states should run the world. Now, the history of the population control movement can therefore show us how local political fragmentation and the impulse to organize globally are intimately related. In describing the development of global norms and institutions to control population and the backlash that this has provoked can therefore help us understand a process as powerful as it is paradoxical. Our world is both coming together and coming apart. But where to begin? Uh, that's the question um, that I faced when I decided to write a book about this. Uh, it's about five or six years ago. When does this story start to unfold? And how can any one book cover all of it um, between two covers? Now, the idea of population control is at least as ancient as Plato's Republic. It has been argued that some kind of population policy is common to every culture. And most have been pronatalists in that they teach people by means more or less subtle uh, from uh, tax breaks to bride burning to be fruitful and multiply. That's not the history that I'm writing, not all of that, um, because that would be impossible. Uh, instead, I'm trying to understand the people who are trying to control the population of the world, which is a modern phenomenon and a somewhat more manageable uh, subject. But when we tend to, to think of population control, uh, but we historians, that is, but also some, some sociologists and political scientists, they tend to see it as the quintessential state-building project. Population control is something that governments do. Now, following in the tradition of uh, Michel Foucault, Scholars like James Scott have argued that census-taking, official statistics, uh, eugenics, and so on, all of this can be understood as part of a process 
in which states uh, try to make societies more legible and harness their resources, including human resources. Now, this is understandable. It's understandable why we might suppose that it, was, it would be state officials who would be the first and most persistent advocates of population control. Now, for hundreds of years, state sovereignty has provided this organizing principle of world politics. If governments can exercise exclusive authority over a specified territory, it is usually because they claim to represent the nation that inhabits it. And that's the case regardless of whether these people come from different places, speak different languages, and have different loyalties. Now, as a matter of law, of international law, the borders of states and nations are assumed to be coterminous, which is why these two terms, nation and state, have come to be synonymous. But if you think of it just for a moment, you, I'm sure, can think of many examples of countries that don't conform to this ideal type of nation state. In fact, just the opposite, how few there really are um, that don't have uh, border disputes, that don't have uh, issues with cross-border migration, um, nations in which there aren't um, minority communities uh, who make claims as communities, and how often all this has upset international relations, relations between states, and relations among communities within societies. Now, controlling how a nation reproduces itself has provided an alternative approach to policing a nation's borders. It's one that's measured in time as much as space. The regulation of public health, of reproduction, and of migration, what I call the politics of population, created an arena in which people fought over such questions as who shall inherit America? Now, barring beaten men from beaten races, promoting the fertility of the native-born, sterilizing the unfit, all of this made a nation seem like more than just a political construct. It made the nation seem like a biological reality, one that could be purified, enlarged, or improved. And yet, in the work that I've done, what I've found is that the most dedicated protagonists in all of these struggles were not state officials. It was rather the networks of scientists and activists who worried about population trends and tried to do something about it. It was they who often worked across borders all over the world to try to advance a common agenda. The mere possibility of shaping demographic trends encouraged people to conceive of alternative ways of organizing politics, whether in terms of religions or races or generations or civilizations. I'm just going to uh, show you a small example of that, if I could. Um, this is from a book um, by um, Lothrop Stoddard, uh, which is called The Rising Tide of Color. Um, it's a work um, that was inspired to a great extent um, by a man named Madison Grant, uh, who wrote The Passing of the Great Race. Um, and if you've read The Great Gatsby, uh, you'll see reference to 
the man named Goddard, who'd written about how it is that uh, these teeming um, black and brown and yellow hordes were taking over the world. And he'd say that this has all been proven. It's science. Um, this Goddard character is really just a combination of uh, Lothrop Stoddard um, and Madison Grant. And what both of them did, I'm just going to show you uh, Stoddard's um, map of the world, is divide up the world uh, according to different races. And for Stoddard, it was the pressure of population growth among non-white peoples that was driving uh, political conflict. Um, the both of them um, were writing uh, in the 1920s. And this, I think, just provides an example of how people can imagine the world in a different way, uh, in which it's not uh, divided up by nations and states and the borders uh, between them, but where there are deeper forces that are driving um, political change. Now, population change and the recognition that it might be possible to direct this change prompted a more profound question, or a more important even question, than who shall inherit America? And that question was, who shall inherit the earth? The state sovereignty seemed to stand in the way of meeting existential threats, such as degeneration for the eugenists, or global famine for Malthusians, or uncontrolled migration for nativists in many different countries. Fears of population growth and movement provided new reasons and new ways to divide nations and divide the world. This cited ethnic conflict, and it raised the specter of racial, religious, or class war on a global scale. But this challenge to the principle of state sovereignty, and especially the concern that the earth could not support swelling numbers of human beings, also inspired visions of a world community, of a global family. Now, scientists and activists organized to press for common norms of reproductive behavior in this global family. International and non-governmental organizations spearheaded a worldwide campaign to reduce fertility so that all families would be planned families. Now, all along, they sought to create institutions that could operate independently of normal political processes. Now, these included uh, typically standalone population agencies with international funding and a United Nations population fund that did not, at least in the beginning, answer to the United Nations. I'm going to be, uh, be talking about that a bit if we have time for it. Now, altogether, they created a new kind of global governance in which proponents were trying to control the population of the world without answering to anyone in particular. I think that's why we have to see beyond the state. We have to um, see that international history of population control really provides only part of the story. Now, if this were only international history, how would we understand the role of the Vatican? In terms of population and territory, it is the smallest state in the world, uh, though it's one with permanent observer status uh, in all the United Nations bodies. The reason we pay attention to the, uh, to the Vatican, everybody I write about saw it as their nemesis, um, that is the people who are leading uh, birth control and eugenics movements, is that it is the largest non-governmental organization in the world. 
And all along, it was the most formidable and implacable opponent of birth control. Not necessarily because the Vatican was against population control per se. In many cases, uh, the church hierarchy was campaigning against what they called race suicide. And if you read um, uh, the writings of um, Catholic church leaders and the internal documents and the archives of the Vatican and the American bishops and so on, you can see that it was particularly the threat of patriarchy, the threat to patriarchy um, that concerned them. Um, this, I think, too, controlling uh, how it is that more than half the world's population is able to dispose of their own bodies can also be seen as a form of population control. And when uh, Pius XI, the first pope, pope to ever write uh, an encyclical on birth control and eugenics in 1930, uh, condemned these practices, he insisted that the patriarchal family was more sacred than the state because it preceded the state. It had rights above and beyond uh, those given to states. And he, like every pope who followed him, asserted an authority that trumped state sovereignty. He was the vicar of Christ and the father of the church on earth. And many of the leaders of the population control movement, for their part, did not identify themselves primarily in national terms. Uh, the whole history of uh, family planning and eugenics movements uh, is suffused with religious rhetoric. Uh, Margaret Sanger said she felt she never had a country. Um, she devoted her life to the cause. Um, for eugenists as well, beginning with Francis Galton, who invented the term eugenics. Um, for him, eugenics was a secular religion. It was a faith that would be handed down from generation to generation. Now, all of these leaders tended to treat governments as more or less helpful in achieving their purposes. And they claimed to represent groups that also would not fit in national frameworks, whether universal sisterhood or future generations, or the community of the faithful, both living and dead. And networks of scientists and activists set the agenda for the global population control campaigns of the 1960s and 70s. Non-governmental organizations pioneered the most influential projects. And it was all carried forward under the auspices of the United Nations. Now, explaining how this happens requires looking at the commonalities among population activists, uh, the ways they communicated and mobilized across borders, the key features in the global context that facilitated their spread. Now, this led me to work in some 50 archives, um, most of them archives of international non-governmental organizations. Um, the World Bank, the WHO, International Planned Parenthood, the Vatican, Ford Foundation, etc. Uh, I also looked at um, the archives of the Government of India, uh, the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare. They don't use the term family planning anymore in India. Um, because India was such an important um, location for this worldwide movement. It's the place where they tested out many of the most, um, uh, what came to be some of the most important techniques, approaches trying to control population growth, as I'll be showing in a moment. But even if you've just spent a few hours uh, in these archives, and if you haven't, I mean, there are actually some excellent papers right here at uh, Stanford um, that I could direct you to. If you spent just a few hours in these archives, you realize that in reading the papers of some of the leading figures 
in the population control movement, that they tended to be people on the move. They were writing on postcards and stationery, borrowed from uh, hotels and steamships and airlines, and so on. Now, not all population controllers were cosmopolitans. And if the history that they made was global in scope, it was experienced by particular people in particular places. But like more and more of the history of our times, it was not organized and divided among different countries, as if they were separate containers that we could now uh, pour from uh, one at a time. Now, as messy as it may seem, you must recognize that population change and struggles to control it are interconnected and transnational phenomena. And they have to be studied that way. I'm just going to give you, um, before I show you um, in visual form some of this history, I'm just going to give you an outline um, of the, the book that I've ended up writing. Uh, I'll save you the trouble, perhaps, of, uh, of having to read it. Um, but, but I'll just say that uh, the book begins uh, in the late 19th century. Um, begins at a time in which uh, many people thought uh, populations were out of control. Uh, it's the beginning of fertility declines across um, northern Europe, with the important exception of France. Uh, it was a time of unprecedented uh, mortality, uh, with famines across much of the tropical world, what Mike Davis has written about in the late Victorian Holocaust. Uh, it was a period of um, unprecedented, in terms of proportion to world population, um, global migration across the Atlantic and across the Pacific. Uh, it was also a time in which uh, people beginning in California uh, organized uh, to try to stop immigration uh, from China. And observers began to see trends in fertility, mortality, and migration as interconnected. Now, in Europe and the United States, there were fears of what Teddy Roosevelt called race suicide, where the decline of fertility. Many of his contemporaries thought it was caused by immigration, especially of the Chinese. Uh, people of uh, Anglo-Saxon descent would not start families on the wages that they would earn in competition with what they called coolies. Now, this so-called yellow peril, and the yellow peril took many forms, but this is, I think, one of the more important among them, how it is people thought that it actually affected the fertility of, uh, of Americans. It inspired the first concerted effort to regulate migration worldwide, uh, because if it began in the United States, uh, it spread uh, to Canada, Australia, South Africa, and eventually much of, um, of Latin America as well, restrictions against Chinese immigration, that is. Now, by the start of the 20th century, it had begun not just to contain Chinese, but to contain Asians, more generally, to their own continent. And increasingly, um, nativists, not just in the United States, but in Europe as well, uh, began to oppose immigration of other ethnic groups, who also were thought to work in wages uh, that couldn't sustain a certain quality of life. Uh, and I'm thinking now, for instance, about the opposition to Italian uh, immigration. The Italians came to be called the Chinese of Europe uh, for this reason. Now, this was the first great victory of the eugenics movement. But by the 1920s and 30s, uh, eugenists wanted to regulate not just global migration. They wanted to regulate the fertility of the fit and unfit within each country. 
Now here's how the veteran leader of the Immigration Restriction League, uh, Prescott Hall, explained it. And this is 1919. Eugenics among individuals is encouraging the propagation of the fit and limiting or preventing the multiplication of the unfit. World eugenics is doing precisely the same thing as to races considered as wholes. Immigration restriction is a species of segregation on a larger scale by which inferior stocks can be prevented from both diluting and supplanting good stocks. The problem was, by the, the 1920s, um, when Stoddard was writing, more and more eugenists in the United States and abroad came to believe that it would not be possible to contain poor people in poor countries indefinitely. And they also found that it was impossible to reverse uh, the fertility decline uh, among more affluent peoples. Not only that, by the 1930s, uh, in India, in Indochina, in North Africa, in Korea, in Puerto Rico, the West and East Indies, colonial officials were reporting rapid population growth. And they often called population growth the principal cause of political unrest. Now, we could talk about um, rates of population growth and how in some cases they were wrong. Uh, there were actually people like Stoddard, not just him, uh, uh, E.A. Ross, uh, Edmund East, um, a number of people were writing about uh, rapid population growth in poor countries and how this posed a threat, even before there was any real data to support this, uh, which I think is itself um, suggestive of how this was seen as a political problem, primarily. Uh, and this was true, this fear among colonial officials uh, was true even in places where rates of population growth were still not particularly high. Um, thinking, for instance, in Africa. Um, for instance, uh, 1952, the governor of Kenya insisted, and I'm quoting, if there is any single cause to which the difficulties of the African people can be ascribed, it is their astonishing rate of increase. Uh, and I could quote you like examples um, from all the places that I mentioned. In many cases, this was a perception of how it was not economic and political inequality, but differential fertility, demographic inequality uh, that was creating problems for colonial rule. But this perception did uh, constitute a crisis of the colonial world. Um, it was a crisis both because um, these colonial officials believed that population was growing rapid, rapidly in these areas, and eventually they were right. Um, but also because at the same time, uh, same time that these people were growing more restless, uh, fertility of European peoples was declining. Uh, this is the beginning in the 1930s. The story be changes to a certain extent later. But beginning in the 1930s, um, the solution to this crisis of the colonial world was family planning, a phrase that first came about in this period. This phrase, family planning, which came to, in many places, replace the term birth control, Margaret Sanger's term for contraception. And it was precisely because proponents of family planning wanted to show uh, that population policies could be family friendly. If you think of, for instance, Gunnar and Alva Myrdal in Sweden, uh, and many of those who agreed with them about how it is welfare states had to create conditions that were more favorable for raising families um, you can see how it is 
that family planning did not necessarily mean smaller families. Um, the way they understood it was that certain families should be large, uh, whereas other people shouldn't have any children at all. A family planning did not specify who was to do the planning in family planning. Now, let me just be clear about one point. The great majority of the people uh, who now work in family planning organizations um, don't particularly care about population growth or decline, at least the ones that I've met. Um, they care about securing and protecting reproductive rights and health. Uh, and I think um, when I give this talk, I sometimes give the impression that these family planning organizations are still trying to control the population of the world, when in fact this movement came apart. Um, that would be a, another talk for another day. Um, but eventually the coalition that came together behind family planning um, proved um, unsustainable because, uh, well, for other reasons that I could go into. But let me just make clear about this point, um, that um, the people that I'm writing about, unlike most of the people who work in family planning today, thought of family planning as planning other people's families, especially people who are too incompetent to do it themselves. And I think a lot of people who work now in reproductive rights don't realize the long struggle that was required to change uh, the meaning of the term family planning so that it could mean actually empowering people um, to do things that most people would like to do, that is to plan their offspring. But the people I write about in trying to plan population, uh, to plan and control population growth and movement, it tended to require devising incentives and disincentives so that people would make the right choices. It required setting up enormous information, education, and communication programs, IEC programs, uh, to try to persuade people to have smaller families, people in poor countries, that is. But colonial administrations could not take the lead. They could not be at the forefront of a movement uh, to control population growth in areas uh, where they were still in charge. Because even while they feared population growth, colonial officials declined to do anything about it, with very few exceptions. Uh, the United States and Puerto Rico is one of them. Uh, the British in, in the West Indies is another. But by and large, uh, colonial officials did little to try to control population growth, even when they thought it was the principal cause of political unrest. And just to give you an example, um, Douglas MacArthur, the supreme commander of the Allied powers in occupied Japan, um, who you may not think of as a colonial official, but in effect in ruling over other people without answering to them, uh, and with MacArthur without answering to anyone, uh, in some cases not even the president, uh, he really shows um, how it is that somebody, even with that kind of power, um, would uh, rather not um, take a chance in trying to tell people to have smaller families. In 1949, he refused to give a visa, even to give a visa to Margaret Sanger, uh, who wanted to visit Japan and uh, meet birth control activists that she knew there. Because, he said, this could not fail to invite the charge that the Allied powers and the exercise of their supreme authority through coercion had imposed measures upon the conquered Japanese people leading to genocide. And you see this refrain over and over again. 
uh, the archives of, uh, of colonial powers in the period. Now, in some cases, uh, like France, it was legally impossible uh, to try to reduce fertility in a place like Algeria, except by indirect means, like encouraging women's access to education, for instance, which is something they did, raising the age of marriage, something else they did. Um, but in terms of distributing, much less promoting contraception, that was impossible. Because France, since 1920, had made it illegal uh, to distribute contraceptives or even to advocate um, population control. And here's what the head of France's National Population Commission warned in 1952. If one has to consider France and Algeria as communicating vessels, that is, because Algerians, as French citizens, so-called, they had the right uh, to migrate to the metropole, there will no longer be any possibility of planning a pro-family and pro-natalist policy in France. In the future, millions of Muslims would come to fill our empty spaces. Now, by 1955, Great Britain faced a similar problem uh, with the start of large-scale immigration from the West Indies. Uh, people who, again, had, at least at that point, constitutional right to migrate uh, to Britain. The process of decolonization, uh, among other things, uh, also entailed separation of populations and the erection of barriers to immigration uh, from the colonies to the metropoles. Now, in terms of actually trying to control the population uh, in recently, in colonial or recently decolonized areas, it was international and non-governmental organizations that would take the lead. They were the ones who spearheaded family planning programs all over the world. International and non-governmental organizations, organizations like the International Planned Parenthood Federation, the Ford Foundation, uh, the World Health Organization. Now, unlike colonial administrations, they could control the population of the world in the name of global norms. They could use the language, credibly, of the global family in calling for family planning. But if you look at the history of these institutions, you begin to notice something. Many of the leaders and much of the staff were often former colonial officials. The first director general of the International Planned Parenthood Federation, Colville Deverell, was a 31-year veteran of the British colonial service. He had almost no experience in the field of birth control or setting up birth control clinics. But he, like many of the people that he hired uh, to staff the International Planned Parenthood Federation in London, were people who had experience in dealing with native peoples, so-called, uh, because that's what they called it. The United Nations Development Program, the parent agency of the UN Population Fund, also included a large contingent of former colonial officers from the United uh, Kingdom, from France, and from the Netherlands. Even some of the American organizations, some of the most important of them, like the Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation, which provided more international aid for family planning than every other international non-governmental organization combined uh, before 1966. The Ford Foundation described its men working to control the population of Asia as a thin red line, recalling Rudyard Kipling's uh, image of the defenders of empire. And this was at a time in which the Ford office um, in India was second only to that uh, of the United States in its size. Um, still, a thin red line. Now, population control cannot be understood as something that 
wealthy white countries imposed on the rest of the world. Let me make that clear. That's how this history is sometimes written, uh, by um, what I think of as, as kind of muckraking accounts, um, much of it written in the heyday of the population control in the 1970s. Um, now the people I write about could not have gotten anywhere uh, if they didn't find like-minded people to work with. Um, and if you look at the, um, the literature on the history of eugenics, more and more of it, um, um, you can see how it is that eugenics was also a worldwide movement. Um, there were vibrant eugenics organizations and active organizations in places like Japan and China um, and, and, uh, and India and the period of Lagos and Nigeria. A house with a car in the garage. Um, it's really quite astonishing. And the first time I ever showed these images, uh, I was showing it to a bunch of art historians at the American Academy in Rome. And they said, you know what this is like? These are like the, um, the chapel, um, the, the images that would be created in chapels, again, largely for illiterate uh, people who had to be shown images that they could understand that would make them change their behavior in ways that uh, institutions wished, in this case the Catholic Church. Uh, so this is Hans Memling's um, famous altarpiece, uh, which is now in Gdansk from the 15th century, showing the um, happy uh, people who are achieving salvation and the unhappy people to the right. The happy people are getting, not only are they good looking, but they're getting new garments and everything else. There's a lot of violence over here, as you might imagine. And you can see in a way why it is the Catholic Church had such a problem with family planning. Because family planning was promising salvation in this life. This was the miracle of family planning um, that they were trying to um, show to, uh, to people in poor countries, including Catholic countries. They tried other things as well. This is postpartum counseling. Uh, the idea is if you talk to a woman when she's just had a baby, she might be uh, more susceptible to be persuaded to uh, have an IUD inserted even if this was a pretty bad time to insert an IUD um, or to be sterilized. In some cases, that message is being broadcast from speakers over the intercom system in the maternity wards. Um, Deepo Provera was something that was seen as even better because in this case, people had to agree only once. You didn't have to send them home. Um, um, in this case, you see how these people were not being examined. They were not being given... Um, uh, physical exams, there is literally uh, a barrier between uh, the provider uh, and what we might have thought of as the patient, but in this case, in this case, not a patient at all. I'll just end with the last images from, uh, from India. We've all heard of the transistor radio. Um, transistor radio is one of a number of things that people are offered um, if they would agree to sterilization. In some cases, in most cases, it was cash payments. Uh, in other cases, uh, it was payment in kind, but typically in the form of food, including food in a time of famine. Um, as I mentioned, mobile clinics didn't work. Instead, people would set up camps, and they'd try to bring people to these camps by promising them incentive payments of one kind or another. Or they could win, win a bicycle, uh, or any number of other things if they agreed um, to submit to sterilization. In this case, they'd achieve 50,000 sterilizations, and that's why this number is across the top. Other camps uh, in Maharashtra in the same period achieved uh, over 200,000 sterilizations um, in a period of about two months. Um, once again, the unhappy family is on display. In this case, literally, 
uh, in that this um, was part of a parade that was um, conducted through the town. Um, how do you achieve over 200,000 sterilizations in two months? You do it through um, vast operating theaters uh, with as many as 50 beds at a time. Um, and inevitably you do it uh, with rather little privacy uh, for the people involved um, and in many cases uh, all too many medical errors um, because it's rather difficult to maintain um, sterile instruments uh, and medical standards under these circumstances. Um, all right, so I'm not going to talk, talk to you about the conclusion. The bottom line, uh, okay, so this was a little bit like empire in that what is the essence of imperial power except ruling over other people, giving them rules without having to answer to them? Some people may say, well, so what? Maybe this was helping these people. Many people would say that um, you know, poor people in poor countries tends to have, tend to have higher fertility. And you would assume that if they had fewer children, um, they'd be better off. Well, the problem is the data has not supported this. Uh, and I can talk about this, um, but, uh, but I could also refer you to, uh, to some of the many um, economists who've worked on this issue and have not been able to demonstrate that causal effect. Because in effect, I think because we don't even have a good uh, theory for fertility, economists still don't know where babies come from. We can't explain across cultures why people have more or fewer children. That's what makes it so difficult to try to get them to have more or fewer, and why people end up resorting to coercion. Um, because uh, it's been so difficult to do that, I think it's, it's, um, it's rather problematic to try to devise programs to get other people to do what you like, especially if you're not answering to them. Um, and many times, um, it really comes down to a question of values. Even if we can't quantify, according to uh, variables, um, the, the reasons why people have more or fewer children, uh, we sometimes think it's a good thing if they did. Sometimes uh, people will willingly um, lower their per capita GNP by having some children. Not all of them regret it. Um, and because this comes down to values, you can see how these values change. Um, this is an image from the 2004 presidential election where you have, I think, uh, a larger happy family and a smaller, very small, unhappy uh, family representing the people from where I come from. Uh, and I guess you too. But uh, um, Okay, so I could give the long version of that conclusion, but I think I should just conclude now and take your questions. So, thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.